no Mickey show. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion And it's melted by we live in time to build a new system Unionize labor rights, highlight the issue Talking heads left is best, the saga continues Continues. The No Mickey Show Hello, everybody. Uh, As you know, this week we are doing exclusive interviews with very special guests, Uh, more in-depth interviews than our typical show, as I am on hiatus. Thank you for joining us for this show. Um, I'm very excited. For the first time ever uh, on the Nomi Key Show, we have Kayendi Andrews, who is the author of The New Age of Empire, How Racism and Colonialism Still, Still Rule the World. Uh, He's also a professor of Black Studies at Birmingham City University and the chair of the Harambi Organization of Black Unity. Thank you, Kayendi, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Happy to be here. So um, colonialism uh, is still a thing. (laughs) Imperialism, colonialism. Before we get into just sort of the the crux of, of, of... what these all represent in in the 21st century. Um, Can we just like do some basic, I guess, definitions? Uh, I think we use these terms a lot um, in modern day and we see them in memes, but you know, basic definitions, like how would you define colonialism in 2021? Well, I mean, colonialism is basically when one country or place controls another place, uses resources, drains out its resources, exploits it. Uh, you know, historically, there had been these European empires, like the British Empire or the Spanish Empire, uh, who'd gone around conquering other parts of the world. Today, it looks a little bit different, where you you have like formal freedom in places of, of large parts of Africa, of Asia, etc. But that same relationship, where the economics and the people are still exploited in order to make us rich, effectively, us when I say us, I mean us in Britain, us in the West, that's still there, and that's why I say colonialism is still very much here today. Is, is colonialism today built off of the colonialism of the past, or is, is this just a completely new form? I mean, people talk about technology and how technology is shaping a new economy, and, and there's colonialism technology, but it's also based off of previous colonialism, sort of, you know, a, a, a uh, Frankenstein version of it, I guess. But is would you consider it sort of the, the, the foundations were, you know, in being a New Yorker myself, the foundation of New York City and Wall Street, the slave trade into Wall Street. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Yeah, I mean, the simplest way to think about it is if you look at a map of global inequality, Africa, Black Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa is the poorest part of the world. Uh, the places where white people live, right? The, rich, the, the West is the richest. And then you have this hierarchy in between. So we literally created the political economy in the image of white supremacy. I mean, that is not an accident. That didn't just happen... By, that happened by design because of the history of slavery, because of the history of empire. And it was the money that was generated through slavery, through formal colonialism, through that exploitation, which allowed us to have the Industrial Revolution, which allowed us to have all this scientific explosion, et cetera, which is why today when you see that same exploitation happening, and now it's predominantly in Africa, it's about resources, stripping out the resources um, for far less than they're worth. In Asia, it's largely about you know sweatshop labor. There's a reason why all the all the jobs went to China, et cetera, because you can pay them wages we would never accept here. That 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 can't be separated from everything everything that went beforehand. So it's just one system. It just looks a little bit different today. Um. 
so, you know, history, like, then you talk about this in your book that, that we, history has sort of in, in history books today in, in the UK and parts of the United States that still fund education, um, you know, there's still representation that, that this is sort of the past and we've moved, we've moved we've moved past these, this colonial history, especially in the UK. Right. But, um, was that just, I mean, did legally? Yes. Legally. Yes. India became independent legally, you know, many, um, different parts of the planet became independent, uh, post-colonial, but in those countries and obviously other countries, did they really, I mean, let's, let's stick with the countries that, that are post-colonial, right. Were there still like trade deals that were set up? Was there still, you know, when when the UK, when Britain pulled away from India, were there not contracts set up to say, okay, well, we're no longer, we don't own you, but guess what? You know, we still mine here. Our companies are still mining. Is that is that sort of what you're talking about here? Yeah. So when Britain leaves India, for example, or leaves Africa, and just leave. I mean, I mean, in India, kind of did just leave really quickly, and that that caused massive problems. But the economic relationships are still there, right? The, the companies are still owned largely by Brit- by the British, et cetera. The economic exploitation doesn't go anywhere. So what you have is you have like you have a parliament, you have formal freedom. And India is a, a really good example because it's often used as this country that's one of the fastest growing economies. It's a success story. I mean, 400 million people in India live in conditions we couldn't even imagine. I mean, the, the levels of the poverty in India are huge. Um, we celebrate the fact that, so under Britain, Famines were a big thing. Like British, the British didn't care, so there were famines happened all the time. Post-colonially, there's been no famine. Hasn't been one single famine in, in India, and you can celebrate that and say, "Look, there's no famine." But millions of people die in India of poverty all the time. So there's no famine, but the country's so poor because it's still economically exploited by not just Britain but the West that you still have the same thing anyway. So it might look different, but it's still exactly the same problem. Why do you think that history books sort of ignore this? Because who wants to admit that everything we currently have is based on genocide, slavery, colonialism, death of black and brown people? It's just not something you can really, you kind of have to look away because if you look at it, then you have to change it, right? So, for instance, think about the panic the world went into over the coronavirus pandemic, which it should have done, right? We had to close down things. We had to, we had to, you know, we're still in lockdown, still, still can't travel to the States, et cetera. Um, but more people, far more people, Nine million people every year die from poverty. Nine million people die from hunger every single year. Almost all of those are black and brown and in the underdeveloped world. We just don't care. <laughs> we literally don't care, right? Um, and that's the scale of it. It hasn't. So when we're talking about progress and celebration, actually look at the, the world. There's nothing to celebrate. It's just as bad. It just, and, it's, and in some ways, it's worse. Um, and this is what Malcolm X, I love Malcolm X. And Malcolm talks about the shift from the European empires to the Amer- America becomes the center of empire after the Second World War. And he says, well, look, what happened was the European empires, they were too brutal. They were too, they couldn't work. Like people don't, people won't, won't accept and people were fighting back. So America comes in with this, he called it benevolent imperialism, where every smiling, it looked like they were friends, but it's just as bad. And in fact, it's worse because now we're not fighting back against it. We just kind of accepted that there's nothing else that can be done. There's a complacency, which I, which I want to get to how it ties into the world's economy um, and institutions today that, you know, seem to sort of keep the economy together. But we'll get to that in a second. Because, yes, I mean, I, I immediately my immediate thought was it was it was so brutal that, uh, you know, there was no there was no way around, you know, post-colonialism eventually at, at, at some point in society. And 
But with that being said, the new empire in the U.S., we 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 have been brutal. I mean, in the 50s and 60s, you know, the global south, there were genocides. Uh, uh, you know, there were, in Southeast Asia, genocides. Of course, Vietnam. You can't you can you can't ignore that. I mean, these were in some cases like Vietnam, where there was an actual pushback and you know, and, and at least a national and international conversation about the failures there. But, you know, there's also uh, what happened in Jakarta, where most people don't even know about that to this day, if it hadn't been for a book that came out like two years ago about how, you know, two million people were were killed, were killed, you know, because they they once met with somebody who was in a union. Um, and of course, the same thing in, in Guatemala and the Global South and Nicaragua, et cetera. Um, I mean, so they were brutal. But is it just because it wasn't happening? I mean, how is it that, especially because media was much more global at that stage, and so how is it that the, the dots didn't connect? Yeah, so it's definitely, I, I definitely don't want to make it sound like I'm saying the violence is gone because, geez, the violence is there. Afghanistan, there's a perfect example right there, right? So it, violence is definitely used all the time still. Um, but the reason people don't really care now, that's not new, right? So if you think about the term genocide, even the idea of genocide, only comes into the into English um, or any other Western language after the Holocaust, right? It's the, it takes bodies we would now see as being white. Everybody was like, that's horrible, that's horrendous. But, you know, 10 million people get killed by um, King Leopold in Congo. We don't care about it. The, the, the biggest genocide in human history was in the Americas. Up to 65, 70 million people wiped off the face of the earth. Nobody talks about it. So this is always, this is this has been one of the, the major facets, if you like, of white supremacy is that black and brown life just is not worth as much. It is not worth, we don't really care about it, we won't talk about it. So when that violence happens elsewhere now, that's just following a pattern that's been there for hundreds of years. So what is it that that made it so different, um, you know, when, when Britain started to uh, decolonize, you know, their... <laughs> They're, they're whatever they're, they're, when they started to decolonize essentially um when when there was this independence movement that was happening what is it that is so different about now where you still have these or at least in the last century where you still have these genocides occurring and they're covered in the press and people mm-hmm. just don't seem to care versus back then where you know there was probably much more allegiance to the monarchy and yet they decolonized yeah, but I guess they didn't decolonize because there was some moral. No, care no, about no, this no. Yeah. You know, I mean, nobody cared then, either, right? Yeah. I mean, decolonization happens because one, people are fighting back, and two, there's a they just realize that this is really in their interest to decolonize. Um, so, for instance, actually, for the UK, one of the things which always underplayed in why the Britain was so happy to kind of lose its colony is because um, because of the empire. If you're a Commonwealth, if you're a citizen of the empire, you had right to live in the UK. So after the Second World War, that's why I live in the UK, because my family moved from Jamaica to Britain. And millions of people were moving to Britain. And illegally, they couldn't stop them, because it's the empire, right? We're all British, we're all British subjects, not citizens. So you can't, you can't stop us moving, did So what the British do, basically, is they say, well, we'll have independence. We'll make you independent, and then you can't come anymore. And then we're going to put these really harsh laws in place that says you can no longer come to the country. So the Commonwealth Immigrants Act in 1962 it starts all of the problems that Britain has with immigration. X starts there. It is not coincidental that is the same year that Jamaica and Trinidad are made independent. Because you make the countries independent, then you start the people coming. So there's no there's no benevolent reason for independence of decolonization. They didn't really have a choice, and they worked out it was actually in their long term interest to do, and they maintained economic exploitation anyway. So it all worked out. It all, it all worked out 
really well in the end of it. Um, the economic exploitation. I mean, obviously, the the, the economy that we're that we live in today is it, it it survives off of of extracting resources. Still, um, it's not something new. Uh, look at what's going on in the Amazon right now. We covered that on the show today <laughs> um, with Bolsonaro. But with that being said, you you have the World Bank, you have the UN, um, these these institutions that are supposed to stand for you know modern day democracy post you know post World War II democracy um, to keep you know to keep to prevent us from kind of falling into to disarray again. Uh, you're saying they're they are basically the same. It's 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 a form of colonialism, neo colonialism. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean it's a nice story. That is nice, but that's, that is, that's, not, that's not what they're there for. And this is where uh, uh, Malcolm says, like, basically, the Europeans got trapped. They couldn't, they couldn't manage empire anymore. And so, like in basketball, when you get trapped, what you do? You pass the ball. And they pass the ball to America, who presented. And America's interested because it's just Europe on steroids, right? It's a place where millions of Europeans went, committed the largest genocide in human history, and then created the this this mass kind of wealth. I mean, it was always going to happen at some point, if you think about America, that it would become the richest place, it would become the center. And if you think about something like the World Bank and the IMF, the, I mean, IMF was set up by America and Britain. The World Bank was set up by America and Britain. The UN was set up by America and Britain. I mean, it was set up by the two heads of West white supremacy at the time. And they set up in a way that would maintain the, the social order. That was the whole purpose of these institutions. And the IMF was firstly it actually didn't didn't do what it does now. So the IMF firstly loaned to Western countries to to basically to bring them up after the war. So Britain took an IMF loan, France had an IMF loan, and this was a way of America taking control. Basically, so look, we're going to give the our former our, our parents, if you like, the former empires. We're going to give you the money. We're going to support you. We're going to build you back up. And after that had happened, then the IMF starts to loan to the underdeveloped world. But if you think about, let's take somewhere like Ghana, for example, which. Had gets its, its independence in in fifty six, I think it is, um, but it's been underdeveloped. The only when Kwame Nkrumah, the, prime, the president, the first president of Ghana, takes over, there's hardly any hospitals, there's hardly any schools, there's hardly any roads. There's no all, all the the same companies that owned everything before Ghana was independent, and the same companies that owned afterwards. So all the money's been taken out. So of course Ghana falls into economic trouble because how could it possibly manage its economy? And then has to go cap in hand to the IMF, who give them a loan and say, all your progressive policies that you had before, they've got to go. You've got to open up your economy so that America can come in and so that Britain can come in and we can privatize everything. And that's exactly what happens. That is, and that is across the whole entire underdeveloped world, which is why you have this debt problem, this debt crisis, and they just haven't been allowed to develop. So these institutions come in saying we want to be your friend, but they're actually making it worse. And then that's not an accident. That really is by design. So, so why do you think that um, so many of these countries still fall for this? I mean, it could be uh, immediately after, you know, post-colonial when when they're in transition or somewhere like, uh, I mean, I'm in Greece right now. Uh, Greece is a perfect example. Greece is part of the EU. Uh, Greece has very educated population, part of Europe, yet still fall, you know, still stuck taking out these loans, forced to take out these loans. Puerto Rico, another beautiful example of of this this strategy um, in an actual colony, you know, a modern day colony. People know now. We know. We know the tool. But like, why is it? Why does it keep happening? Because you have a choice. Because like this, we talk about globalization like it's new. Globalization. This this system was 
mean, that's what, what makes the West the West is globalization. Is slavery. Is what is globalization if not slavery? So there's all these economic things which you put into place. So you don't really have a choice. So like Greece didn't want to. I remember this. There was a whole thing we don't want to. But you got a choice because you ain't got no money. Ghana didn't want to take the loans, but what are you going to do, right? And so because of that, and they end up being forced into it because they're part of the global economy. That's the big problem. It's all tilted one way and there's very little way to resist against it. Okay, so let's throw in a couple of other factors here, which you're not necessarily focused on, but I think are relevant to the conversation that we're we're in today. Um, you know, you have Russia and China. This is China is very relevant to this, but uh, the, the U.S. is like super focused on old Cold War or current Cold. I mean, whether the Cold War, War ever ended. Um, in some, you know, there's lots to be debated there. But it's it's about world power and and world and empire. And each of these have empires of their own built off of different financial models, but all seem to be based in some sort of resource extraction, whether it's, you know, Russia uh, taking, you know, declaring war in Crimea and, and about natural gas and, you know, the, the turf wars between the U.S. and 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 Russia over natural gas or, you know, look to Afghanistan, uh, China and, and the U.S., China and everybody in Afghanistan. I mean, this is sort of the modern day economy is over resources in many of these regions. Um, but like, is it? I, I hate to use this 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 phrase that's overused, but is the toothpaste out of the tube? Like, how do where do we how do we? If you have two other countries, world powers, world powers, and the EU, of course, um, that base their empires off of extraction and exploitation, how can one of these empires not? How can they decolonize without you know surrendering to the other world empire? It's a good question, right? So I think this is the, the thing where the big debate, you know, the big issue, you know, in the 60s was communism, right? Got Soviet bloc, China. Are we having got something different? Is it going to be different? Are we going to have something different, right? And there's a lot of violence. <laughs> Lots of violence goes into from, the, from America and from Britain to quelling that. And what basically happens is they win, right? Capitalism wins. So, so Russia is, it's, it's, it's not really different. I mean, Russia relies on oil and and and, resort and, and selling into the West. I mean, it's not. And oligarchs. And, yeah. and China is also the same, right? Yeah. China's economic development has basically happened since they joined the West and gave up and said, look, yeah, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just do, we'll basically follow your exactly the same model. We'll oppress 400 million, million of our own people to make sure we can, we can build everything. Um, but it really is. There is no, they are really, in some ways, Russia, China, US, EU, they're probably the equivalent of Britain, France, Germany, Spain, in the old system, where they all basically agree on the principles of it. It's just how do you how do you divide it and carve it up? I mean, the problem we have there is, yeah, there's only, like you said, resources are finite, and this leads to war, right? When we saw what happened, one of the things that ended the old empire was the Second World War. You just they couldn't, they just wanted to compete. And unfortunately, if you yeah, if you go forward 50 years, 60 years, there's a good chance you end up in that same, in that same place, right? Because they're all fighting over. Very lim- what are very limited and also decreasing resources as well. So, I mean, with this being said, like, okay, uh, how can capitalism de- be defeated? How can we, as a movement, as as leftists, as workers, as 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 anybody who has the ability to organize, um, you know, wherever you live, if you have the ability to do so, what can you do? You're stuck in a in, in a system. I mean, you you critique Marx in this, and and I think it's very smart because this is we're not in. This isn't the Paris Commune, which didn't go so well either. I mean, okay, great. Uh, capitalism falls in the U.S. Now, how do you do in China and Russia? Like, what you... 
Um, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, one of the one of the things is going back to the earlier question about why people still just carry on doing things is the the way that we are schooled into thinking about things, right? So we colonialism was never just about hard power, about violence. The more the, the more insidious part of it was the soft power. It was the the religion, the brainwashing, the education, the schooling, and still today, that's that's that is what happens. So we are these ideas are fringe. If you go to most schools, universities, college, you're not learning this. You're learning the kind of standard rote Western imperialism. I always say to any student from the underdeveloped world, the worst thing you can do is come and study international development in the West because you're literally just learning how to how to damage your economy. That's the purpose of it. So the first thing I do is educa- education is massively important. Actually, t- peeling this the scales from our eyes, understanding what the scale of the problem is, understanding that you cannot reform capitalism. This, everything that we talked about, those 9 million people dying every year from hunger, that's not an example of the system not working. That's the logic of the system. That's what it's supposed to do. You, We have to do something completely different. And that takes that kind of revolutionary imagination. Um, I mean, in terms of look, the book I just wrote, The New Age of Empire, is a prequel, really, to Back to Black, um, which was about black radical politics. In terms of black radicalism, there is a there is a, a pretty clear blueprint, which is unification of Africa, the African uh, diaspora, a kind of what we call revolutionary pan-Africanism, where you essentially take Africa out of the world system because Africa has all the resources it needs, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's a, it's a long, long-term project, don't get me wrong. But, you know, if you could do something like that, that would bring capitalism down. Capitalism needs to exploit Africa. So I would say... I have a black radical solution. Outside of that, I don't know. I just say, look, it's bad. And we have to understand it's really bad. And bad for all of us. Because the truth is, capitalism is going to kill us all. If you actually look at global warming, it is going to kill us all if we don't stop. So hopefully people will wake up and realize it. Well, and that's, and that's what's so beautiful about so many indigenous communities coming together in the Amazon, for instance, and fighting, or people at pipelines, water protectors on pipelines, or, or folks blowing up pipelines. I mean, there's just so much at stake, survival. Um, and you can actually, you know, put transform the debate. Tra- I mean, uh, Joe Biden was moved to 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 retract the Keystone XL. More and more of that can happen. Um, and those, you know, let, it's capitalism. So if it happens in the U.S., you know, the oil and gas market can also be affected with Russia mm-hmm. as well. If if everybody in the EU goes off of, as they've said, that it goes off of natural gas, that affects Russia. Um, and so, you know, these little things do make a difference. And I think it's 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 really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I would always say organize is the key thing. And all, all have to think about it as a long-term thing. And I think sometimes with activism, we think, well, what can I do tomorrow? What can I do next? That's not how it works, right? You with the with, I'm talking about like revolutionary pan-Africanism, that's a 50-year plan. Like it's a long plan. And sometimes what, what's been done and the way that we think about change, et cetera, is we kind of miss that, the big picture, the long-term plan, et cetera. But I always think about Europe. The European Union is a perfect example of somewhere where you have to give whiteness, white people, I don't know you call it, credit for just having a really good imagination and planning really far ahead. I mean, the EU is, plan- is dreamed up after the Second World War. I mean, imagine that. They've killed millions of people. Germany's like the, the complete enemy of everybody. And people sit down and say, oh, you know, in a few years' time, we organize, we have this European Union. I mean, it's really, if you had to explain that to the average European person, they'd have thought you were crazy. But guess where we are now? We've not just peace across Europe, massive economic bloc. Germany, of all people, is the, the leader of the, the whole thing. So, with a bit of imagination and a bit of planning, 
Yeah. Believe me, anything is possible. If that's possible, then African unity has to be possible because the problems aren't that bad. I wouldn't have thought. What's amazing about it is of all people, of all of, of all folks to be able to be defiant to Germany, it's it's the UK. It couldn't be Greece. It couldn't, you know, none of the it had to be the UK. <laughs> <laughs> which you know too well. Um, super, really fascinating conversation. Um, great book. Uh, you can go check out uh, the, excuse me, the New Age of Empire from Bold Type Books. That's where you can go check it out. Uh, we have it in our information section, so you can check it out there. Just click on the link. Um, really, like, just fascinating. Uh, kind of flipping the flipping flipping the narrative on this. Um, Kayendi Andrews, really grateful to have you on today. Thank you. Well, thank you. Welcome to the Nomi He Show. As you know, if you've been tuning in this week, I am on break. Right now, I'm on break. I'm probably like, you know, sleeping. I'm not going to lie. I'm probably just napping. I would love to say it was more exciting. That's probably what I'm doing. It's just catching up on my sleep. Um, but, you know, luckily we have great folks who have decided to have conversations with us early on. Uh, so we keep the information flowing when I'm off. Ryan Grimm, friend of the show, friend of the movement, and everything. He is a DC bureau chief at The Intercept and the author of We've Got People. Go check it out. As I said earlier, I'm coming out with another book to compete with yours called We've Got the Platforms. We're silencing you people. There you <laughs> go. Sort of the endless conversation on the show. Um, Ryan, okay, you've got this piece out uh, in The Intercept, which caught my eye. And and I think it was, it was a, you know, while there were so many hot takes, um, rightfully so, on uh, Biden's, the administration's pull out of from Afghanistan. I really loved that you kind of went back to the conversations that were taking place during the Obama administration uh, when Joe Biden was did have a, a, a different take. Um, former chair of the Foreign Services Committee, it's not like he was completely blind and, and we like to mock his, his you know, his, how, how he... Yes, exactly. But, you know, it's not like he's a complete idiot when it comes to foreign policy. Um, so this piece is out in The Intercept. It's titled, Biden's basic question in a 2009 White House meeting exposed the folly of the Afghanistan war. All right, let's go back to the afternoon of October 9th, uh, where this story started. But actually, before we get to where did you get this from? So... I have a strange habit of reading all of Bob Woodward's books. Um, oh, poor you. <laughs> they, they are, I've always thought if I like wanted to do like a, if a completely different career, what would be so fun would be just to wait till Bob Woodward's books come out, take everything in the book and then rewrite it in a way that is interesting, readable, and has the proper like context and politics behind it. Because the stuff that he gets is incredible. Yeah. He's really like, good at like getting people to fess up and share stories. The slogan, the saying in Washington is if Bob Woodward listens, people speak. Because like he is the like historian for the elite in DC. And so everyone's talking to him. And if you're not talking to him, all of your rivals are talking to him, and you're gonna be the goat in not, not in a good way in the, in the book. So everybody gives him notes, tape recordings, documents, and sits down for as long as he will sit there with his tape recorder running. And, but then he just barfs it out into a book. Like, cause he turns them around so fast. He's a terrible writer. Um, 
He's a terrible writer of sentences and he's a, and he's not a good writer of narrative. Uh, you're right though. I just love that you're, but they're chock full of information that has never gotten out before. And you can't just rely on like the one Washington post excerpt that he does or the couple like nuggets that get out. So I always read his books when they come out just to see what I missed. Even read the one about, he wrote one about the fight over the debt ceiling and like the super committee, <laughs> like with Eric Cantor and, and Joe Biden, actually, it was a big character in that one. So this one was called Obama's Wars. And it was just about, and it came out in 2010. That's how fast he does these things. Mm-hmm. So, and it was all about um, Obama's decision, Obama's decisions around Iraq and Afghanistan. And I had remembered in there that, that there was a couple of moments where Biden had been surprisingly impressive uh, because, uh, you know, for one, he was a major cheerleader of the war in Iraq. Like summer of 2002, he was holding hearings, uh, pushing for the war. Uh, he certainly supported the war in Afghanistan, just like everybody else other than Barbara Lee did. Uh, but in this 2009 uh, meeting, to, oh, and to back up, so it's October 9th, the morning of October 9th, uh, Barack Obama learns that he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And so then, so then that, yeah, so then middle of that afternoon, he's got this massive cabinet meeting with Bob Gates, Secretary of Defense, Hillary Clinton, who's then Secretary of State, Biden, Petraeus, Stanley McChrystal, uh, Condoleezza, not not Condoleezza, Susan Rice was there, um, Richard Holbrook was there, like all of the you know, important cabinet officials and, you know, and top uh, Pentagon officials and generals involved with the planning where everybody's laying their cards on the table for what, what they think they ought to do. And the, and the centerpiece of the meeting is basically McChrystal and Petraeus arguing for 40,000 more troops. And the way that they always make these arguments, they present three different options. One was 10,000, one was 40,000, and one's like 85,000. And you can always tell what the generals want because it's the, always the one right in the middle. And they try to it's, give you it's, two. It's the same strategy. You're a father yes. where you want your kid to wear something that's presentable. You say, here are your three outfits that you get to choose yeah. from today. So you can exercise your creativity. <laughs> yeah. You want their buy-in. Yeah. Exactly. They, they, have to, they, have to, they have to think that it was their idea. Exactly. Oh my God. And of and course, so, Obama fell for it. <laughs> yeah, right. And so uh, Eikenberry was also there as a former general who was the uh, at the time, the ambassador to Afghanistan. And he, he was actually one of the only ones that was kind of with their on, on Biden's side. So the question that Biden asked, which is in the headline there, is, uh, you know, kind of flowed out of, he started with Eikenberry. He's like, so do we have a reliable, stable governing partner in the government of Afghanistan? And Eikenberry's like, no, we don't. Like, it's, 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 a, it's a den of thieves. It's just a network of criminals. Um, and the money that we're pumping in is just actually making it worse, not better. And so then he then says to Petra- to Petraeus and to McChrystal, uh, what is the value of adding troops if the government is fundamentally corrupt? And none of them have an answer to it. Like, off, like in several of the uh, times he asked the question, there's n- literally no answer. And Woodward says nobody's notes include an answer. Um, people just kind of just sat there quietly 
because there is no answer to that question. Well, Secretary Clinton had a response that, and 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 you know, it's not like Biden and 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 Clinton ever had similar strategies in foreign policy. You know, they, they, they clashed. You know, they often clash, right? But she had an answer that was sort. It, it was it was more thoughtful in that. Well, if the troops aren't there psychologically, this could cause dysfunction. Essentially, um, like if you do want to have some sort of "quote unquote" democracy building or rebuild, you know, it, get rid of the corruption. I don't know how you do that with a reliable government or have a reliable government. There needs to be something in place to to create an illusion of stability. Does that necessarily? I mean, it, it, perhaps that's peacekeeping troops or. And and that argument is is still being said today. Like even in the EU, you just have to be there so that it doesn't turn into total disarray. It doesn't mean that you have to fight, but you have to be there. Was that sort right. of her take? Is that kind of sort, sort of sort of? So her and what's funny is Woodward zeroed in on how she started her comments by saying, "Your problem in Afghanistan is, or your dilemma in Afghanistan is the, the use of your uh, rather than our." Uh, people were like, "Oh, okay." So she's 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 uh, she's playing the politics of this already. Um, so basically, what she said was, "Look, the you and Biden did at least force the conversation of the corruption." Uh, so she's like, "Look, you you have two you got you got the problem of the uh, of of the corrupt government um, that has not been." built to a place that it could withstand us us leaving. So, so her argument was basically, if if we pull out now, then you guarantee everything's going to fall apart. Um, and, to, you know, Taliban takes over eventually. Um, if you put troops in, despite there not being a, a competent, uh, a non-corrupt government, there's at least a chance that down the road, something positive will develop. Uh, but she doesn't explain how that could be and what ought to change. So sort of what she's saying is put the, just keep the troops in and keep things how they are. Um, and maybe the answer is microloans, Ryan. Right. Yes. Micro microloans. And so at, at some point, um, you know, you know, at some point in the, in the future, for some reason, reason, things will get better. Um, but What's what's beneath that is is just kick the can down the road so that we don't suffer the the political cost of of withdrawing and and seeing the government collapse immediately. Uh, and so, but that's that's what they ended up doing. You know, just for eleven more years, and at at the cost of tens of thousands of Afghan lives, you know, a couple thousand American lives, and a couple trillion dollars, they just delayed a week's worth of, you know, bad news for whoever the president was. So, because it was a political decision, just to remind folks, it's not, you know, your interpretation of it being just a week's worth of bad news. Obviously this has impacts on people, people's lives, but so Biden wanted essentially just posing the question as to what we got out of it. If we stayed, if we stayed there, if we put more troops in, if there was a surge, um, but did he have some sort of other strategy like he did in Iraq, for instance? His same same as he's talking about today, uh, actually. That and actually, so remember, this was before we'd even caught uh, Osama, killed Osama. Right. So his argument was just send in a bunch of like death squads uh, to to deal with uh, whatever their the official name is that we have for our death squads. You know, you send in these covert operations 
and tamp down any uh, any like any like terrorist cells that you see developing um, in the same way that you would do in Somalia or around the elsewhere around the world. So now, now he calls it over the horizon capabilities, where it's like not saying we're leaving forever, but we're not going to have we're not going to occupy the country. Uh, and if the U.S. wants to flex its muscle, we'll send in some some helicopters and and some goons and and you know knock some heads, massive you know massacre a school full of children and and then get back in the helicopter and get back away. So it's not as if he was like hunting for the next year's Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> Um, but that, that was this kind of alternative, which yeah. in Washington, it represents like the peacenik flank. That's like empathy. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, but I mean, it, this is also, I mean, it, we, we all criticize drones now, but I remember the initial conversations where, well, you don't have to get boots on the ground and it's, it's in their minds, it was more strategic, et cetera, et cetera. They, because Obama was so allergic to having to this boots on the ground, um, Concept. I mean, wow. it's why they didn't go into into Libya. Uh, the arguments made at the time with with drones. I think it's just really hard to digest these conversations from the outside today, especially ten years later or eleven years later from that conversation. Um, for folks to really understand, like these were the reformist conversations post Bush. Because I want to go back to one thing. There was a moment during the Bush years where. The Afghan the, the war in Afghanistan, the early, early years could have been won. And what did the Bush administration do? They decided it to one. it was one. And they and, and they decided to expand into Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, was there ever any turning back after that? I mean, if if Obama were to to inherit this, how how did it disintegrate from that point? Like it's a big question, but you know, you're yeah, I mean, old enough to know it. Right. Yes. I mean, once and so I interviewed um, Anand Gopal uh, uh, a couple weeks ago for the Intercept podcast, uh, Deconstructed, and he talks about this exact question. He also has an article in the New Yorker this week that is tremendous. If people haven't read it, or I guess last week, um, called uh, "The Other Afghan Women," where he, he spent enormous amount of time last summer um, traveling around the countryside of Afghanistan, talking to women there um, about why it was that they were em- embracing is not the word for the Taliban, but, but welcoming the Taliban relative to the U S occu- occupation. Um, and so he, he said, he, his art, his, his, his thinking is like by, by Oh five or Oh six, like it was over. Like we had won it by 2002 and lost it by like 2005. And because we had, um, we, we had empowered the worst, the worst people in Afghanistan, these these like gruesome warlords, uh, we had then demanded that they provide us, uh, but, you know, uh, with terrorists, because our, our objective there was to hunt down terrorists. Problem was Al Qaeda had fled uh, to pa- Pakistan and uh, Iraq. Um, not Iraq yet, but they would by 2003 be going to Iraq. Um, and the Taliban had had given up, put their, put their weapons down and gone back to their, their, their homes. And so there were no active terrorists to hunt down. And so in order to feed our demand, which was a cash demand, uh, not, and, and a political demand because the, uh, superiors needed, you know, numbers to, sh- you know, to punt up the chain, uh, they just started turning people in. And so 
this is a country that had 20 or 30 years of war at this point. And so there are all sorts of uh, hurt feelings and animosities that have been created over that time. And so now you have uh, this uh, giant power that is willing to come in and destroy your enemy or your rival um, and actually wants to know who, who they should go in and kill and, and capture, send to Guantanamo or whatever. In, in his book, uh, No Good Men Among the Living, he's got this one example of two rival uh, uh, factions who both turn each other in as Taliban and neither were Taliban. And the U.S. goes in and massacres them both. It's like, it's like tragedy on top of like travesty. Um, And so pretty quickly as a result of this, the Taliban reform. And now um, they they were thoroughly discredited discredited among the population by Mm -hmm. 2001. Uh, They're, they hadn't ha- they didn't have any functional ability to govern from 96 to 2001 they didn't care about governing they weren't providing services to people um the one thing that they had done is brought a level of peace and stability but also like misery um and so compared to what the us and its warlord allies were doing people were like okay let's give the taliban another shot and it was a very indigenous movement um you know, Anand talks about by the time he started reporting on his book was like, oh, eight, every family that he talked to had somebody who was actively involved with the Taliban. So this idea that like, we were going to win over the civilian population was was gone. It was like the civilian population was actively engaged with the Taliban movement by then. Um, And so then Obama was elected saying, you know, if you remember, Democrats' biggest complaint was that the war in Iraq took the eye off the ball of Afghanistan, um, which there's, it's not obvious that Donald Rumsfeld keeping his eye on Afghanistan would have necessarily made things better. Um, but what it did is that it forced Obama when he came in, because he had boxed himself in with this, I'm against Iraq, but I'm not against all all wars, just dumb wars, that uh, he he felt a need to fix Afghanistan. And so then he does this crazy, like, sends 40,000 more troops in, which in the book, in in, in that meeting, he's, he, he, he's like, wait a minute, counterinsurgency doctrine says you need one troop for every, like, 30 or 40 civilians. It's like, aren't we, like, 400,000 troops short here to the generals? Like if 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 you're you're proposing counterinsurgency, you're proposing a hearts and minds winning over the countryside, everything. Uh, and they're like, yeah, it's short. So like they like it was designed to fail. Like even even on its own like gross terms, it was to, it was it was designed to fail. It was designed to just create some space where, and then he said after that we're going to withdraw. And he announced both those things at the same time, which is always weird. Um, and so he didn't, you know, he did the purge. I mean, he did the surge. Then he did the drawdown by 2013, 2014. He's back to where he was when he got in. But then he didn't pull the troops out. Um, 
Because now, now there's another election coming. Right, exactly. When, when he sent, uh, when the surge happened and he sent more troops, I think what's, what was always very confusing to me, and and maybe this is kind of where the heart of this conversation came from, was, okay, you're sending more, more troops to win the hearts and minds. That's the counterinsurgency strategy. But are they actually winning hearts and minds? Are they killing folks? Are they like, what, what is, what are the troops doing? And simultaneously, you know, this is, we're 10 plus years into the war. And this is the point where we're hearing stories from uh, Navy SEALs who were just shooting people up for, for shits and giggles, you know, going out, you know, rogue and, and being basically, you know, turned in by their fellow Navy SEALs. You're hearing these, these horrific stories, um, coming back from 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 folks who've, who've been deployed, you know, horrific from those who were there and didn't feel comfortable doing what they're doing and horrific, you know, accounts from other, other uh, uh, you know, officers in many cases doing what is clearly human rights violations. So what were they supposed to be doing if they're winning hearts and minds? They were, suppo- they were supposed to build up the Afghan government and uh, build up a police force and build up a national army and then, and then magically it would be backfilled by, by a government. Like that was their, that was their theory. Not only was the latter part of that, the magical backfilling of a government um, theory insane. The idea that they were going to create a stable police force and a stable army was crazy too. And Holbrook in the, in the meeting that Biden, um, uh, that, that Woodward writes about, he says, look, you know, I recently went to uh, a police training Academy and 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 looked checked out a police force in Helmand Province, and everybody said it was a model of of improvement, and that yes, it was it had been bad several years ago, but now you should see how it's 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 operating wonderfully. It's like I went out there; it was just as bad as it was before. It's like he's like I had my people do audits of the numbers of the actual numbers of police and, and army units. He's like uh, a lot of them are addicted to drugs, uh, a lot of them. Uh, simply don't show up, don't exist. Like it's just fake. The the commander will claim to have somebody on the payroll, but the commander is actually keeping the money. Um, most, almost all of them are illiterate and and not and not trained. The contractors were just pretending that they had uh, trained people to do this. And he's like, and the attrition rate is twenty five percent. And so he's like, look, so Stanley McChrystal says he's going to grow it to this number, 400,000. It's like with an attrition rate of 25% a year. Like those, those numbers are just mathematically impossible. And so you're confronted in this meeting with this, with these realities that are like unavoidable. Like these are not, this is math. Like you claim you're going to do this, your recruitment numbers are this, but you didn't factor in, you have a 25% attrition rate. And McChrystal just says, he's absolutely right. We need to get our attrition number down. Get your attrition. Get your, get your, the people there are crooks. They're not even sure. There's no show jobs. They're doing not like, even there. like even if they yeah. the reason maybe they're not there because they're smoking. Like what? Yeah, and so they just <laughs> and in, in, the, in the meeting in the meeting nobody responded to Holbrook. They're like they're like here goes Richard, you know, <laughs> off on one of his like tangents and like, and, like lectures again. Um, so the whole thing was doomed, um, and. It was, it was designed to make a ton of money for, the, for contractors yeah. whose job it was to just keep Afghanistan like off the front pages. So, um, and, and in order to do that, and Holbrook also pointed out, he said, we're the corrupting presence there. Yeah. 
good for him for saying that in the meeting. Um, he said, we are giving money to contractors and to, and to these Afghan units that are then paying the Taliban for protection. So the more that money that we put in, the more money the Taliban is going to get. I'm so glad you bring this up um, because, you know, if, if you can touch on this briefly, I know it's a, it's a big subject, but, you know, this is around the time this conversation may, maybe preceded the time ISIS started to um, grow. Right. And it was like this. I mean, if, if, if we recall when ISIS was, it was like you couldn't, it was decentralized. You didn't know how to like, no one could really figure out who was in ISIS. It was so, it was so confusing how it was structured in the early days of ISIS. Um, and they didn't take it seriously. I remember in the beginning, the Obama mm-hmm. administration had said something. Uh, the JV. Yes, yeah. the JV. That's what it was. Um, but it ended up being a catastrophe. And, and you know, how much of, of keeping the, the, the devil, you know, in power, whether it's Al Qaeda Pre pre Osama bin Laden um, or or the Taliban in place is was a way of at least they're hierarchical and we have a relationship with them. Whereas these guys are rogue and we don't know what the hell they're up to. Not to mention well, the other. Well, worse. Like when the U.S. came in and Karzai became president, Car- he immediately reached out to the Taliban. Taliban were like, "We want to surrender," and and a, some of the Taliban. We're like, we we would we want positions in the government. Like, I want to be mayor of this town. I want to, you know, um, and the population, like for some of them, the population wanted that, and the Taliban represented uh, a significant, you know, portion of the population, and so it would have been entirely reasonable and normal within the course of Afghan history to say, okay, like let's. Let's put together a government. Um, but uh, Rumsfeld and Bush insisted that that not happen, um, that they be, you know, destroyed, whatever that means. What do you do? Well, it just requires genocide at that point. Right. Which, of course, occurred. Um, final question, just real quick. I've been asked this multiple times this week. I'm, I imagine you have been too. How... If Bernie Sanders were to become president, just just, just an exercise here, um, would he have been able to do what Biden did? And, and granted, Biden's getting wrecked for it uh, mm-hmm. by his own friends and allies and 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 you know his neoliberal crew. Um, would Bernie Sanders Sanders have been able to withdraw from Afghanistan the same way? Um, and if so, would there have been some? Do you think that he would have had a different model for withdrawal? So Bernie's advantage would have been that he wouldn't have been suckered into the the, the kind of elite status quo uh, sentimentality around the Afghan uh, National Army and believing that the National Army was more than it actually was. Like he would have probably recognized that this thing is going to collapse within minutes of the U.S. withdrawing. Uh, so that could have allowed him a little bit of prior planning, but the second that you start the prior planning, then the collapse happens. So there's not a whole lot more you can do. And so the the interesting question is, would the military have followed his orders? Um, Wow. And I don't know. Like, I, I, I I don't know if they would have or not. I I think they could have seen it as an opportunity to say like, look, like we cannot like, yeah, I know. And I think 
that to some degree they deliberately botched yeah. uh, elements of this and refused, and they certainly refused to plan in a in a way that would have prepared them better. That and is I think, great. Yeah, and I think uh, the refusal to prepare was was deliberate in an, in an attempt to box in the civilian leadership, which mm-hmm. is what, you know, the military does this all the time. They, mm-hmm. they try to like position, they're not going to tell, they're not going to disobey the civilian leadership, not going to order them around, but they're going to try to put them into a situation where their civilian leadership has only one choice. Yeah. Um, and so I think they would have done everything they could to Bernie to get him in a place where he didn't have an option of actually getting all of the, all of the troops out. So in That's some ways, um, Biden, and because of his credibility with with the government, with the country, because you know he's Joe Biden, he's this yeah. foreign, you know, foreign policy, foreign affairs chair, blah blah, um, was able maybe to pull it off in a way that would have been harder for somebody like Bernie to pull off. Mm-hmm. Um, try to imagine Elizabeth Warren pulling it off. Like, I mean, the same could be said about the infrastructure bill. Yeah. He barely get the infrastructure bill through. Can yeah. you imagine Bernie Sanders doing this? This is, this is yeah, and I think it. I think it shows that a any progressive agenda is going to face like in torrential headwinds. Um, and if if he can get through, if he can withdraw from Afghanistan, uh, get through this reconciliation package, mm-hmm. and actually deliver this stuff, I think he'd go down in history as like a president that that. 20 years from now, if we're not all underwater, exactly. like everybody is like, that was great. Like everybody, just everybody in the media, all the historians, everybody agrees. Like that was incredible. Right. Yet at the time, the media will have, will treat him like, um, that, you know, just the, the absolute, you know, worst president in the history of the world. Like I think any, any president trying to push through a significant agenda like that is going to get, just absolutely savaged. Yeah. Well, you know, um, it's all his fault. That's that's what uh, the new UFC spokesperson, Donald Trump, uh, <laughs> likes to say. Ryan Grimm, awesome conversation. Thank you. Always. Thank you. Always a great, always a pleasure. Hope you're having um, fun on vacation. Well, that's, yeah, in the future, me says yes. <laughs> Today, me, not so much. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Take care. Later. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Nomi Key Show. As many of you know, we are on break, but you know what? We don't, we have to feed the algorithms. We have to feed your brain. So we have decided to do all these wonderful pre-tapes with extraordinary guests like Matt Brunig, who is here. Uh, Matt Brunig is the founder president of the People's Policy Project, which has been around since 2017. Its primary mission is to publish ideas and analyses that assist in the development of an economic system that serves the many, not the few. And unlike most think tanks that are, you know, financed by major corporations, uh, which have an agenda, obviously, they are funded by small dollar donations. And Matt has a piece out in Jacobin right now titled 35 Million Americans Are Losing Unemployment Today. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay. Um, 35 million Americans are losing unemployment today. Before we even get to that number, the economy is out of control right now. I think we're all aware. We may not even have a good sense of it because of eviction moratoriums and so many other factors. But um, how many people 
is there a sense of how many people didn't qualify for unemployment that could have if the if if the taxes had been had been based on you know last year's taxes during the pandemic or no taxes um, or other factors that that bar people from getting un- unemployment? Uh, it's kind of hard to say. Um, you know, you get a lot of anecdotal reports of a lot of people not being able to sign up for administrative reasons. Um, the state agencies are not prepared to handle this kind of load. Um, and so a lot of people were denied or just put on kind of uh, hold forever and ever and ever. Uh, and then you have a lot of people who they're not they, they're not eligible under the rules, but, you know, maybe they ought to be. Uh, So people who just newly joined the labor force, um, they, you know, graduated straight into the pandemic, they would never be eligible for unemployment benefits. But in a very real sense, they're unemployed in the same way. They can't find work for for similar reasons. So, you know, it's it's definitely in the millions and millions of people who uh, are are looking for work right now, um, but not on benefits and who never received any benefits. Um, What do the benefits look like right now? Right now, so we're talking about post-expiration. So right now, they've gone back to normal. Um, So it depends on your state. Um, Most states, the benefits, if you lose your job, you got about 13 to 26 weeks of unemployment benefits. Mm -hmm. And the amount of unemployment you receive depends on what you used to earn. And it tends to be around maybe 40% of what you used to earn if you earn like a a median amount. Um, If you earn more than that, then it drops below that level. Um, And you're not eligible under the now normal rules, which we've gone back to. You're not eligible if you were a freelance worker, a self-employed worker, a gig worker, like an Uber driver. Um, All that eligibility, which temporarily they were eligible, all that's gone away again. So, Interesting. Okay, so um, I, this is anticipated. Uh, the economy, we, we have another variant, um, potentially more lockdowns. I mean, there's, we know where we are right now. What, what is being done? Who, who, are, who are our saviors right now? And, and, and what are they doing to fight for an extension or, or fixing some of these issues that you know, were brought up last year when we went into lockdown, but it seems like no one's really done anything to address them? Yeah, I mean there are no there are no saviors, I guess, on this one. I mean it's it's dead, and uh, it seems like it's going to be dead. Um, the the yeah the unemployment benefits, you know, they were beefed up in March of last year in the CARES Act, and they kept being extended and extended and extended. And the last time they were extended was March of this year, um, scheduled to end on September sixth of this year. Had a lot of time in the interim there to look at things and say, hey, the economy is still not doing well. We're still over 5 million jobs lost relative to before the pandemic. We st- you, know, you could look at all the problems and still say, hey, all right, we need to get ahead of this and do something. And there was just an affirmative decision made not to do that. Uh, Joe Biden sent a letter to Congress saying that he thought it was appropriate to let the benefits lapse. Um, Jen Psaki was asked about it, and she said that you know the president thinks it makes sense to get rid of them at this point. And for that reason, also a lot of members of Congress, I mean, they wouldn't be able to get it passed anyways because he might veto it, but they're kind of mum on it. People who you would, uh, who probably secretly, you know, deep down want to do something, they've decided it doesn't make sense to go up against Biden and, and start trashing, uh, you know, what he's doing. So what is the justification? I mean, this is, this, I, I don't understand. Is it, is this politics? Like he just wants to win, you know, one package. One, I, I don't, 
really understand how like he, he seems to have been genuinely convinced at some point in the summer that these unemployment benefits were holding things back that uh, they were keeping people from taking jobs and stuff like that and and you know like at the town hall he was asked about this from a business owner and he kind of you know he gave into that idea but he said hey you know uh, they'll be over soon you know sort of the message he gave he seems to personally believe that and it's unfortunate because we kind of had a an experiment in whether this is true or not, because starting in early June, about half the states in the country already got rid of the benefits. It was the GOP-controlled states, and employment did not grow any faster in those states than, than it grew in the states that retained the benefits. No increase whatsoever. And so we had a kind of perfect experiment, like you couldn't run it any better. Half of them are treated with the cuts, half of them not treated with the cuts. What happened? Oh, no difference. And that I don't know why that didn't shake his confidence at all. It may also be, you know, to really get this done, you would have to do it through reconciliation if you're not willing to get rid of the filibuster, which you know all about all that. And so do they want to put that in the reconciliation? If they put that in the reconciliation, they would have to get rid of something else because they've already determined a dollar figure for the reconciliation. And so you know, at this point, I don't know, they seem to have been backed into a wall. And also partially Biden seems to really believe that you know people are just kind of sitting lazy on, on the dole to some extent. This is, it was almost like you had um, a press shop out there pushing out this myth on behalf of McDonald's and, you know, all these Uber or whatever, that they can't keep people um, working because of unemployment benefits. I, what was the counter? What was, I mean, there, there was a counter uh, uh, yeah. point made. You didn't hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, you. I mean, there were so many reports of labor shortages, labor shortages, labor shortages. And, and then in some of the public statistics, their employers were also saying they had a lot of job openings. Um, and so it would almost be reasonable at some point to go, I don't know, who knows, maybe it is holding it back. I don't know. Like, it's a pandemic. It's weird. No one knows. We don't. We don't have anything to really base this on in the past. But then it was tried. You know, that's the key thing. Half the states tried it, and it didn't work. So whatever else you think is going on about why maybe that maybe there aren't that many job openings. Maybe people are reluctant for health reasons. Maybe they can't get childcare. There could be all sorts of reasons why workers aren't matching with employers at the moment. Um, but whatever it is. It cutting the benefits didn't help, and it only made things worse. At least, you know, for the budgets of those families. How is this going to affect um, the economy in, in in the near future? The consumer economy, let's say that. Yeah, so spending is going to go down uh, considerably. There was a study from. Um, a group of economists recently, uh, sorry, I'm pulling it up here. Yeah, here we go. Uh, Coombs et al. They had a very interesting study where they were looking, they got uh, bank account information, um, which is interesting. So obviously they worked with some bank who had a lot of bank accounts and they were able to look inside the bank accounts of unemployed people and, and see what happens when uh, their checks started getting cut. And they found that for those families, their spending declined by about $145 per week, which that is, you know, if you annualize that, it's about $7,500 a year. So that's maybe an easier kind of number to think about is as if, you know, your family just cut $7,500 of spending, um, you know, like on an annual basis. Uh, 
And you multiply that across, what, 9.3 million uh, families that have an unemployed worker in them. You know, we're starting to talk about billions and billions of dollars of consumer spending being wiped out, you know, each month. Um, so, I mean, in a very real sense, it's, it's a form of austerity, right? Like consumer spending is going down, incomes are going down. Um, and if you think the economy uh, maybe could use a, a, a jolt, that's, that's the opposite of what you want, so... So simultaneously, we're having these conversations about um, the eviction moratorium, extending the eviction moratorium, which is, okay, an important conversation to have, but it's not canceling rent. Um, there's going to come a day where, just like unemployment benefits, they're going to folks are going to say, state governments are going to say, no more, you know, no more moratorium. Um, now you have to pay a backlog of potentially 15, 15 months, 16 months, 18 months, however long this goes of rent. Um, and if you're in a major city, uh, you know, if you have student loans that you can't get out of, if you don't have unemployment benefits, maybe you're back to work, maybe you're not, maybe you're still at home because your kids are whatever. I mean, this is, this is the pandemic we're living in. It just doesn't seem like government's actually, other than passing these, you know, little acts here and there, um, is actually doing anything. I mean, the, 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 between unemployment benefits and what is eventually going to be a major crisis in housing uh, that already did exist, but it's going to be compounded. What What is you as just like an expert? This is what you work on. Are we like in denial? Is what what the what the f yeah. is going on? <laughs> I mean, you know the the timing of it all, the politics of it all. You know, the, the relief that came, the last jolt of relief came in March and the pandemic seemed to be winding down. And in the summer, it got lower and lower and lower. And so everything was pretty much scheduled to go away around Labor Day. And I think it was scheduled uh, for that time period because that's when school starts. And so there was some notion that, you know, whatever might be holding parents back, at least a lot of them could put their kids back in school. And so everything kind of got timed based on that assumption that we were past the peak. Everyone's getting vaccinated. It might be a long tail, but we're past the bad part. And then just because of the way the processes and the mechanics of the federal government work, we can't pass anything except through reconciliation, which we can only do once a year or maybe twice a year. And then we've already kind of figured out what we want to put in that. Like it just became impossible at that point to do anything. And then, yeah, I, I don't know. This is, seems to be a lot of wish casting at this point because, of course, hospitalizations and deaths are through the roof. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's way worse now than it was when they passed the last relief bill in March. So whatever you thought about how bad it was then, they passed a big package to deal with it. And the pandemic has, has gotten worse in the past month or so. So... And and not only that, it's gotten worse in these states, these Republican states that have, as you said, you know, they've cut unemployment benefits earlier. Um, so, sure, yeah, and I mean that, you know, I haven't seen anyone try to quantify that, and maybe some researchers will get to it, but it's not inconceivable, of course, that you know, as as the benefits get cut, people get out there more, you know, pounding the pavement, you know, uh, that 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 could contribute to spread, um, yeah. just like. Yeah, I mean, it, you think about what their theory of how this is going to work is. Ideally, as you you move these 9.3 million people off of unemployment, um, and then they go out and they quickly find work. And it's like, is that really what we're trying to do at this moment? Push you know, 9.3 million people into, I don't know, mostly service sector jobs, because those are the sectors that are complaining the most and claim to have the most job openings, and then have face-to-face -face interactions with people when we have this highly contagious Delta variant. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, but it just seems like 
they, they feel like they're stuck because this is how they scheduled it based on other information they were operating off of. And now they don't have any mechanisms to undo it. I mean, of course, they always do. They just get rid of the filibuster, pass a bill, you know, but the, you know, they've, they follow these own uh, self-imposed impediments and, you know, feel you to, like they're you have helpless. To respect the laws of the Senate, the rules of the Senate, you have to respect them. <laughs> right. um, well, well, one of the rules of the Senate is that you can change the rules of the Senate. Oh so, you know. What? Yeah. Listen, the parliamentarian is a very, very important person that none of us elected, but we all respect and admire um, to facilitate these white supremacist rules. <laughs> Matt, thanks for joining us. Uh, dreadful, scary. Yeah, it is worrisome. I, I will yeah. see how it turns out. I don't think it's going to be good when the numbers come in. So, I'm I'm still not giving up living off the land and having a goat. That's where I was at the beginning of the pandemic. And I'm starting to think that still might be where I'm going with this. If, if the land isn't like on fire or underwater. Um, <laughs> or drought. Or drought. Yes. Let's list all the different things. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Thank Matt. You. Matt Vernick. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. The No Mickey Show. Momentarily for class solidarity Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed Deep state, faith fed, everybody break bread Racism, homophobia, sexism, religion In this melting pot we live in Time to build a new system, unionize labor rights Highlight the issue, talking heads left is best The saga continues, continues. The No Miki Show, the no Miki Show.